thank you for um, this gathering around you, Jesus. You are so worthy of this. Lord, you told us to love you, not just with all of our hearts, but also with all of our minds. And Lord, usually I'm preaching to the heart and the mind is kind of second. And tonight it's just the opposite. We're we're teaching the mind. And I pray that you would help us to grasp and understand and um, walk together through this material. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And we will give you all the praise for every good thing that happens here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So tonight's message is called His Story, The Census. And I spent a lot of time thinking about how to do this series, and I was unwilling to do the series without talking about the actual history and some of the criticisms that have come in, and I just didn't feel like that is Sunday morning material. I I, I feel like it needs to be talked about, but in a, in an atmosphere where people that actually want to talk about that aspect will come together. And so that is you. And so if this tonight seems a little dry, you have no one to blame but yourself for coming tonight. <laughs> Luke writes this. He starts his gospel by saying this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the very from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. The whole gospel of Luke is to nail down history. It is that he would know that those things that he has been taught, that he already believes, that he would know them with certainty. Apologetics serves two um, purposes. One, it helps believers to be settled in their mind of those things they already believe in their heart. The certainty of what we believe has to include our minds. It, it, we, we can know things in our heart, but when our minds come into agreement, they get nailed down. And so one of the main purposes of apologetics is for believers, people that already believe so that they can know for certain that which they already believe in their hearts. The second purpose of apologetics is there is a group of people in the world. Let me, let me give you one group of people that apologetics is not going to work on. And what, all I mean by apologetics, it's just the word for giving rational explanations for what you believe. Um, there's one group it will, apologetics won't work for. There's one group of people in the world that wants to not believe. They are preconditioned. They don't want to believe. There's no argument that you can make 
that will convince them because they want to not believe. They want to tell you their opinion. They want to tell you why you're wrong. But the idea of having a conversation with them and convincing them is going to feel very, very frustrating because there are some people that want to not believe. There's another group that want to believe. And that group of Christians they are going to just be bored by apologetics. They're going to, you're going to go on and on about why this is true. And they're going to say like, so what? I already believe. I, I, I already believe I don't need any more. There's one group of people in the world that, that aren't believers, but, but apologetics can help them. And, that, and it's, a, it's the group of people that are willing to believe. They just want it to be true. They don't, they don't want to believe just for the sake of it. They don't just want to believe whatever, but they're willing to believe. But it has to be true. And with those people, you can talk and you can give arguments and there can be a wrestling with things um, like this around apologetics. So I've been telling you the last two weeks of what the most challenged passage of the New Testament is. So why don't we go ahead and read that? I think we'll have it up here too. It's Luke chapter 2, 1 through 4. Here we go. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. Let's go to the next slide. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. That is right there the most challenged text in the New Testament. We'll talk about why that is in just a moment. But to bring you into the history, I want to give you the principal characters and how they fit in Roman history and Jewish history. The first one, of course, is Caesar Augustus. All right, who is this guy? Um, Julius Caesar was murdered in 44 BC. His heir was his nephew, Gauss Octavius. He was just kind of known as Octavius. And he ruled Rome starting in 44 BC. His, his reign lasted for 56 years. He began ruling kind of a co-rulership with Mark Antony. Mark Antony and Octavius ruled together. Then they had a falling out. They were kind of against each other. Then in October of 40 BC, they had a treaty at Brundusium where they split up the kingdom and they ruled together. And uh, then in 31 BC, Mark Antony got uh, linked with Cleopatra and they waged war for the whole kingdom against Octavius. And, and in Actium, Octavius won a decisive war. Um, they both died, uh, Antony and Cleopatra died, and then he was the lone ruler of the Roman Empire. In 27 BC, so it's four years after Actium, 
the Roman Senate made him, gave him the title Augustus. So Augustus is actually not his name. It's actually a title. It means chief. It means uh, the majestic one. And he had that title, Augustus. And, and that's where we get Augustus Caesar. He ruled 56 years. He died in 14 AD, August 19th. And he left the throne to his son, Tiberius. And Tiberius, of course, was the emperor, the Roman emperor, when, when Jesus had his ministry. But Caesar Augustus was the guy in power at the birth. Second principal character, Herod the king. Okay, this guy is, he is called Herod the Great, oftentimes by, by history, because of his building projects. He built Masada. He did a lot of the work on the second temple, the rebuilding of the second temple. He built some beautiful, beautiful things. So here's who this guy was. He was appointed to be the king of the Jews by Octavius and Antony in 39 B.C., now, there was a problem. The problem was that even though um, Israel and Judah was already part of the, the Roman Empire, they were already a clan kingdom, they were conquered in 63 BC by Pompey. They, had, they already had somebody ruling. His name was Antigonus. Antigonus was a priest. After the captivity, all the rulers of Israel, when they came back out of captivity, were not kings. They were priests. All their rulers were priests. And Antigonus was a priest. He was already ruling. And Herod came to um, Antony and Octavius. He was actually going to plead for somebody else. And they said, we're going to make you the king of the Jews. And we're appointing you. And we're giving you that designation right now. However, you're going to have to kick the other guy out. And so they gave him some armies and he marched. And three years later in 36 BC, he um, kicks Antigonus out, has him killed. And he becomes the, the guy now to kind of justify his reign as King to try to win favor with the Jews. He marries this woman named Miriam, he actually had 10 wives, but one of them was Miriam and she was an Hasmonean, which was the priestly line. So he's trying to kind of, even though he's a vassal of Rome, he's trying to make, get in with the Jews. So he's this mixture and he's a very, very suspicious guy. He has many of his wives killed, including Miriam, which was his favorite wife. Um, he had two sons, Alexander and Aristobulus by Miriam, and they were the uh, heirs apparent that were going to be given the throne. And they were suspected of some type of betrayal. He had those guys killed. Then he appointed his son Antipater to be the next king. And then five days before he died, he had Antipater killed because he was suspicious of him uh, and a plot that Antipater had. So he's he's got... He had some issues. He is called King Herod, and he is the, the only one that really gets that designation as king. Because when he dies, he leaves his 
kingdom to his to three sons, but no one, no one of the three sons gets the title king. He gives half of the kingdom to Archelaus. Archelaus gets Judea, and that's called an ethnarchy when you get half. And then he gives Galilee to Antipas. Uh, Herod, they all get the name Herod. So it's Herod Archelaus, Herod Antipas. He gets a fourth of the kingdom, Galilee. And of course, he's the one we know in the gospels that is Jesus is dealing with. And he's called a tetrarch. That means a fourth. And then Philip is given Perea, another fourth of the kingdom. And he's also called a tetrarch. So you've got three sons that take over for King Herod on his death. Now, One of the sons, the ethnarch, Archelaus, was so horrible that in 6 BC, the Jewish Sanhedrin wrote to Augustus and said, please, we we cannot do Archelaus. He He is a horrible man. He's a horrible king. And so what happened in 6 AD is Quirinius was sent from Rome to become the first Roman procurator of Israel. He, they, at this point, Israel becomes part of the Roman Empire under their direct governorship. Up till this point, they're a client kingdom. Rome did this with a lot of the places they conquered. Israel is way on the edge of the Roman Empire, and it was just easier for them. They would conquer a place, and they would leave it in place. They would have a king that they appointed, but it would self-run, and it was called a client kingdom. They were not taxed. They, were, they just had to pay tribute. And that's how Israel was run until Quirinius came, and then they became part of the Roman Empire, and he... Quirinius in 6 AD, the first thing he did was run a, a, a census for taxation. And it was a very famous census in Israel because it led to a rebellion. It led to many, many deaths. And it was the beginning of being under the direct supervision of Rome. Now, the most famous procurator is the, the fifth procurator. So Quirinius is number one. The fifth one was Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate ruled from 26 to 36 AD. Okay, so, so we've got Quirinius. We've got Herod the king. We've got Augustus Caesar. There's one other guy that we need to talk about before we get into um, the issues tonight, and that is uh, Flavius Josephus. He is the author outside the Bible of Jewish history in this time period. He was a Jew who, during the Jewish war from that went from 66 to 73 AD, he went over to the Romans. He became the adopted son of Vespasian. Vespasian is from the house of Flavius. And so he took his name. That's where you get Flavius Josephus. And he wrote extensively about the Jews. He wrote uh, the war of the Jews, the antiquities of the Jews. He wrote about this period. Now, the reason why this guy is so important 
is if we were just doing Roman history, we've got all kinds of authors that we can, can corroborate things with. But for Jewish history, there's just this little province on the edge of the Roman Empire. He's the only one. He's the only one that wrote about it. And so outside of the Bible, this guy is very important. Now, there are a few problems with him. One, he's writing in 90 A.D., and two, he's inconsistent. He's got, he says things one way and then another place he says it a little different. And so he's all we've got. But uh, don't ever think of Josephus as uh, inerrant. Okay, so here we go. Criticisms of Luke, point two. In 1886, the German theologian Emil Scherer in his monumental study, A History of the Jewish People in the Time of Jesus Christ, criticized the traditional view. He raised five points which showed he believed that Luke's account could not be historically accurate. Number one, nothing is known in history of a general census by Augustus. Number two, In a Roman census, Joseph would not have had to travel to Bethlehem, and Mary would not have had to travel at all. Number three, no Roman census would have been made in Judea during the reign of Herod the king. Number four, Josephus records no such census, and it would have been a notable innovation. Number five, Quirinius was not the governor of Syria until long after the reign of Herod the king. Emil Scherer, German theologian, does all of this work. It's all from Josephus, and he he gets this thing all out, and these are his conclusions that we really can't take Luke seriously. And I'll tell you what. The what has happened since that time, people like Richard Dawkins have gone on his work on what Emil Scherer said and Robin Lane Fox and some of these other guys. And here's here's what Dawkins says in The God Delusion. He, he says, uh, Luke's account of the birth of Christ is complete nonsense. Luke only makes up a story drawing on myths from other cultures of God's being born by a virgin birth. We, we of course, we, we, we're the center for the atheists here in Madison, and they have a big billboard. I don't know if it's up yet, but it says, Reasons Greetings. Not seasons greetings, reasons greetings, because they, they want to talk to thinking people about uh, uh, this the whole Christmas thing and the whole story of the birth and the the virgin and the star it's all a bunch of myths so here's here's where we're going to understand the foundational problem we have to look at something called the sure consensus in regards to Herod's death Up until 1886, scholars had placed his death at 1 BC, the Shurer Consensus, he got several historians to sign on with him, placed it in 4 BC. Academia, since that time, followed them. 
And for the last hundred years, any pastor, any commentary, you're going to look and you're going to see 4 BC is when Herod died. When, when you accept 4 BC as Herod's death, then you have to have Christ's birth before that. So you've got 5 to 6 BC for Christ's birth. And they have been locked in on this for a hundred and however many years that is. Um, but something happened in the 60s, and we're going we're gonna to kind of get into all that has happened since that time. And so here, here's, here's point three. Uh, when was Jesus actually born? Now, first, it's important to note that every time we give the date, we are acknowledging Christ's birth. That the reason why we say 2018 is, is it's been 2,000 years, 2,018 years since the day of the Lord. That is A.D., is the day of the Lord, the day the Lord was born. Um, B.C., for a long time, meant before Christ. Now it's B.C.E., before the Common Era. But it doesn't matter which one you use because both acknowledge Christ's birth. Christ came in to time and he split time. Our whole time system is based on him coming to this earth. Um, dating Christ's birth changed with the sure consensus. Um, five and B, five or six BC, which is where you're forced. If you accept a four BC death of Herod the Great, then you are forced to a five or six BC birth of Christ. The problem with that is, is it negates the overwhelming majority opinion of the church fathers, which stated that Jesus was born sometime in three. The year 3-2 B.C., 3-2 B.C. They did years a little different, so 3-2 B.C. Here are some of the fathers that affirmed that that's when Jesus was born. Tertullian, in his answer to the Jews. Julius Africanus, in his chronographies. Hippocles of, of Rome, in his chronicles. Origen in his homilies on Luke, Eusebius uh, of Caesarea on his church, in his church history, and Epiphanius in his, and I've got dates that all of these, these are all the early fathers. Every single one of them said the same thing. Jesus was born in the year 3-2 BC. Maybe more disturbing than that is the 4 B.C. or the 5 to 6 B.C. birth of Christ contradicts Luke's own words when he states this, that Jesus was about 30 when he started his ministry in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. The 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Augustus dies in 14, so the 15th year is the year 2829. This is the 15th year. This is when Luke said he started his ministry and that he was about 30 when he started his ministry. Now, I want to cut Amos Schurer and his consensus a little slack here. Because when he wrote in 1886, people did not really know 
how good of a historian Luke was. There was a guy in the 20th century, early 20th century, named Sir William Ramsey. He was an archaeologist. He was a New Testament scholar, and he was an atheist. And he went to the Holy Land on a mission to prove that the book of Acts was a book of fiction. And he stayed there for 25 years. And he studied every monument, every title, every book. And he was converted during that time. And he changed his position completely. Here's what he said about Luke. Luke's Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect to its trustworthiness. Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements trustworthy. This author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. That everything he did was careful. Every title he gave, every city he gave, and his work, uh, William Ramsey's work on Luke, it goes into every single place, every single title, and Luke went out of his way to be accurate. Now, Luke wrote... Before the fall of Jerusalem. So he wrote around 60 AD. Remember, Josephus writes in 90 AD. When you're writing history, the closer you are to the actual events, the better. And so we've got two opposing views as to when Jesus was born. And uh, we just, this is where we're, we're heading. Okay, so it all comes down. To when did Herod, King Herod, die? The reason why their consensus concluded that he died in 4 BC were for the following reasons. Main reason. All three of his sons started dating their reigns from 4 BC. Usually you start your reign when the other one dies and they all from coins and from other sources, you can, you can prove that all four of them started counting their regnal years from 4 BC. There's only one definitive passage about um, Herod's reign in Josephus. It's in, it's in the book of antiquities and here's what he says. When he had done those things, he died. The fifth day after he caused Antipater to be, Antipater to be slain. Remember the son he had slain. Having reigned, since he defeated Antigonus, 34 years. But since he had been declared king by the Romans, 37 years. So he had a 37-year reign. If you go by when... Antony and Octavius appointed him. But of course, you remember, he didn't start reigning then. He had to go win this battle against Antigonus. And it took three years to win that battle. And so he actually reigned 34 years until his death. So 37 years from when appointed by Rome, 34 years when he was uh, actually reigning after he had defeated Antigonus. Now, they took 40 BC as the year when Herod was designated 
to be the king by Octavius and Antony. In 37 BC, for the time, he actually started ruling from Jerusalem. So you've got 40, and you have got 37. Uh, and so you, you subtract 37, you're going to get to 3 BC. You subtract uh, 34 from 37, you're going to get to 3 BC. So it would look like it would be 3 BC, but, there, but they didn't put it at 3 BC, and here's the reason why. Um, Josephus said that Herod died between a lunar eclipse and Passover. There were all these things that happened. He dies, but it starts with a lunar eclipse and it ends with Passover. Now, the reason why this lunar eclipse is so important is in all of his extensive writings, this is the only lunar eclipse he ever mentions. A lunar eclipse in that day was a harbinger of judgment coming. He had 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 two... um, rabbis killed that had removed a golden eagle he had put on the temple and they had gone at night and they had torn this down because it was blasphemous it shouldn't be on a roman eagle should not be on the temple they tore it down at night he has these two guys killed and that night there is a lunar eclipse and the and the the moon turns blood red and it was a sign in the ancient world of there is judgment coming for what you did. And he says, Herod died between this eclipse and Passover. Well, the problem is in three BC, there is no lunar eclipse. There's none in three and there's none in two BC. There's one in four BC on March 13th. There's a partial eclipse and there's one on January 30th of 1 BC, which is a full eclipse. And so what they did, what Shura did, is he, they started with 40 BC, and they counted th- the 37 years, and it's called inclusive dating. You're going you're gonna to learn there's three different ways to date things. It's very confusing. Inclusive dating is when you count the first year and your last year as part of your reign. So if you count 40 as one, you get and you and you count the last year uh, 4 BC as one, even though it's a partial year, you've got the 37 years from 40 and the 34 years from um, 37, and they both end in 4 BC. It's called inclusive. Dating, And so that's the eclipse they chose. They couldn't do 3 BC, so they used 4 BC as the year. Um, so why are some historians leaning towards the 1 BC date where, where there's the full eclipse? There's, there's three main reasons. Number one. This is in the mid-60s. William Filmer, Ernest Martin, these are top historians, were, were doing the work on Josephus, and they're like, this can't happen. There's a number of things that Josephus says happened between the lunar eclipse and Passover. We've got March 13th to April 11th that year, and the number of things that has to happen. I'll just list them to you. 
Herod, after the eclipse, before Passover, Herod was taken at least 10 miles to warm baths and returned when treatment failed because he was sick. He ordered important men to come from every village in the nation. They had to travel up to 80 miles, and they arrived. Herod's son Antipater was executed, and Herod died five days later. Then there was a magnificent funeral. This is all before Passover. Magnificent funeral was planned and held for Herod, whose body was carried about 23 miles and then buried. And then a seven-day morning began, followed by a funeral feast. Another public mourning was planned and held for the patriots who had been executed during the preceding, preceding the night of the eclipse. Then Passover came. And these guys are historians, and they mapped out everything that had to happen and all the time it takes to travel and get the word to them to come and then them arriving. And the minimum is 55 days. And they've got it happening in less than 30. They're like, it can't be. This cannot be the year that Herod died. There's too many things that have to happen. And so they gave the the January 30th, 1 BC, as a much better year. Because you've got January 30th to the mid-April. You've got 90 days for all of these things to happen. Much more reasonable. Secondly, the, the March 13th eclipse is a partial eclipse and it doesn't appear in the sky until 3 a.m. Whereas the January 30th one is a full eclipse and it appears at midnight. And because of the fact that it's only mentioned once and it's very prominent, it makes more sense that it was that, uh, it's the January 10th one. There's a third reason. And that is the year that he was appointed and the year that he actually began his reign. So here's what happened. The reason why they chose 40 BC as the year that Antony and Octavius appointed him to be the king of the Jews was because Josephus had said it was in the 184th Olympiad when Calvinus and Polio were uh, counselors. Uh, the Olympiads are every four years, and that's how they measured time in Rome. They would give you the Olympiad that it happened in. Um, the problem with the 184th Olympiad, and, and, and it ended in June of 40 BC. The reason why this is a problem is because Polio and uh, the two guys that became consul didn't become counselors until October. The other problem with it is, so it wasn't in the 184th Olympiad. It was in the 185th. The other problem is, is Octavius and Antony made this treaty in Brudisium, and that wasn't until October. They weren't even together until the 185th Olympiad. Um, and so... Josephus gave an impossible date. The sure consensus accepted 40 BC, but it is an impossible date. The 184th Olympiad, he's just wrong. It has to be the 185th, which could be 40 BC, but it could also be 39 BC because it goes a full year into 39 BC. And we're going we're gonna to look at why I think it's 39 BC, that everything should start. 
in just a moment, but I want to say this first. Uh, when I was doing a lecture down on campus, it was called Christmas History or Myth, and I went down and met with the Roman, we got a Roman Empire professor at the university, and I had given him a guy's work named uh, Andrew Steinemann, when, when, when Did Herod the Great Reign? And he read it, and we got together, and I said, what did you think? He said, well, he said, I'll tell you this for, for absolutely certain. There's no way that Herod could have been appointed king in the 184th Olympiad because they weren't, Octavius and Antony weren't even together. They were at war with each other. The Treaty of Brundisium happens in the 185th, and it can only be after that that this would be made. It's the end, it would have been the end of 40 BC or in the first six months of 39 BC. Two other um, Roman historians, Appian and Dio, both give events that would lead one to believe that it's 39 BC instead of 40, that that original appointment was made. Here's why that's important. If you are buttoning your shirt and you get off one button, every single button all the way down is wrong. Have you ever done that? You get to the bottom and it's like, oh boy, I've got to start all over again. If you start... You get the wrong date for this appointment. You get the wrong date for Herod's death. You get the wrong date for Christ's birth. You get the wrong date for Christ's death. You get the wrong date. Everything, everything has to be changed if you get the wrong date. So, if we move it to 39 B.C., that this appointment was made in 39 B.C., and that he defeated Antigonus three years later in 36 BC, which Josephus says that he defeated Antigonus exactly 27 years to the day after Pompey's victory in 63 BC on Yom Kippur, which would, if you do the 27 years in just in non-inclusive dating, you would come to 36 BC. Everything comes together if you use a different way of counting your reign. There's another way of counting reigns, and that's called accessional dating. Okay, so we've got inclusive dating. Inclusive dating, you count the, both the year. And, uh, an example of inclusive dating is Jesus saying, I'm going to rise on the third day. That's inclusive dating. Friday is day one. You're counting that day. Saturday's two. Sunday's three. Even though two of them are partial days. That's inclusive dating. That's how it works. Non-inclusive dating is just how you would regularly count things. And then there's a third way called accessional dating. And this is how they often dated kings. And in accessional dating, the day that you, uh, the year that you ascend to the throne, that year is given to the last guy that ruled. Your reign doesn't start being counted until the next year. It's called accessional dating, and, and the reason why is, is so that you're not double counting years. Well, Andrew Steinem wrote this. He's a history professor down in Iowa, and he wrote this long thing called when, Herod, uh, when Did Herod the Great Reign? And he said, 
The problem with the sure consensus is they ignore a lot of the emphasis of the evidence in Josephus. Josephus uses accessional dating everywhere with these priests. And he gives example after example after example. He said, I don't know if they didn't know about these or if they chose to ignore them. But if you use accessional dating and you start, you have his appointment in 39 BC, you start counting his reign in 38 and 37 years would bring you to 1 BC. 36, if you'd st- he ruled from Jerusalem after he had conquered Antigonus in 36, but you wouldn't start counting until 35 and 34 years would bring you to 1 BC. When you put all of these things together, and this is what these historians are saying, these make sense of all the facts. Put all the facts together. This makes way more sense. And it allows for the traditional um, birth of three, the, the year 3-2 B.C. So that leaves with just this one question. Why would all three sons date their reigns from 4 B.C.? To understand that, you have to understand something called antedating. Kings often antedated their reigns. That means you take years that you did not serve. Herod himself um, took those first three years, even though he wasn't reigning. When he makes coins, his first year of reigning, his first coins all have the year three on them. That he counted those first two years, even though he wasn't reigning yet. He took those years. That's called antedating your reign. And something happened in 4 BC with Herod the king. He had Aristobulus. He had these two sons that were heirs to the throne. Alexander and Aristobulus killed And at the very same time, there was a misunderstanding with Augustus and and Augustus demoted him. And it was, it was the famous quote at that time. It's better to be that Augustus said this about Herod. It's better to be one of Herod's pigs rather than one of his sons. Um, He lost his status as a friend of Caesar. And at that point, uh, he gave Antipater a co-regency that if Antipater had lived, he certainly would have counted his reign from 4 BC because Herod, was, he, he, he invited him into a co-regency because he had lost his friend status. And so historians say, and I'm just going to read this to you, This is uh, historian Paul Finch. At the death of Alexander and Aristobulus, Antipater became co-heir with his father and in no way different from a king. This was in 4 BC. Yet Antipater schemed to kill his father. When Herod heard about it, he recalled Antipater from Rome to try him. He was convicted of high treason and Herod sent a request to Caesar to have him executed. Herod at this time changed his will and completely expunged Antipater's name from memory. This suggests that Herod's reign was seen to have officially ended with his disgrace in 4 BC and not with his death. His successors appropriated Antipater's regnal years and incorporated them into their own reigns. 
numerous similar situations can be found in history. So everybody wants extra years to say that they reigned longer. So they took those years that Antipater would have taken and they took them as their own. As even though they hadn't reigned, they antedated their reigns to 4 BC. Proof of it? Well, I'll give you, I'll give you some proof. Um, you'll never find a coin of Herod the king that has one or two, two on it. The reason why is because they don't exist. He didn't start printing coins until he actually started reigning. Well, there are no coins. Well, Archelaus didn't make coins, or he didn't put, he, he made coins. He didn't put dates on them. Both Philip and Antipas made coins that we have today. The earliest coin we have of Antipas is four, and the earliest coin we have of Philip is five. Where are one, two, and three? It's very possible that they don't exist because they, they weren't actually ruling then. They took those years by antedating their reign. All right. So let's get back to Luke and let's get back to the criticisms. So you take the one B.C. death of Herod the Great and we use 3 B.C. as the birth of Christ. Turns out all of the answers from Luke are answered. Okay, here's our first criticism. There's no historical record of Caesar Augustus's decree to register all the inhabited earth. The purpose of a Roman census was to tax its subjects. This is why the translators of the King James Bible felt confident in adding the census to, to the word census uh, taxation, that Caesar had the whole, had a census where he had the whole world taxed. However, taxation, taxation is never mentioned by Luke. Only the word census or registration. There were three empire-wide censuses for taxation during the reign of Augustus, 28 BC, 8 BC, and 14 AD. The problem with any census for taxation at the time of Christ is that the Israel is that Israel would not have been included as a client kingdom. They paid tribute. But how they raised that money was their business, not Rome's. Was there ever an empire-wide census required by Caesar that would have included Israel? Historian Ernest Martin found one that fits all the facts. Augustus hints at it when he receives the title of father of the country in 2 BC. And this is from his own journal. While I was administering my 13th consulship, which is in 2 BC, the Senate and equestrian order and, and I underline this, the entire Roman people gave me the title of father of my country. This award was given to Augustus on February 5th, 2 BC at the glorious silver Jubilee of Augustus. And it was also the 750th anniversary of the founding of Rome. The tribute of having everyone pledge their loyalty to him was part of the celebration. He says that the entire Roman people gave me 
this designation. So the entire Roman people for Augustus, what that would mean was not just Roman citizens, but everybody that Rome had conquered were all part of Rome. The entire Roman people also would include men and women, slaves and free. It means everybody gave him this title. In what way would have they given him this title? It would have to have been, of course, before February 5th, 2 BC. So here's Erosius, uh, a Roman historian in the 5th century, and he said that in the records that were available to him, that there was a census held by Augustus when he was made the first of all men. Erosius dates the census to 3 BC. And here's a quote, Augustus ordered that a census be taken of each province everywhere. This is the earliest and most famous public acknowledgement, which marks Caesar as the first of all men and the Romans as lords of the world. That first and greatest census was taken since in this one name of Caesar, all the peoples of the great nations took oath, mark this, took oath. It was a census but it wasn't for taxation. It was for this oath. They pledged to Caesar. And at that time, through the participation in the census, were made part of one society. There is an empire-wide census, according to Erosius, where for the purpose, not of taxation, but to make an oath. An inscription was found in Paphlagonia, a region in North Central, Central Asia Minor, part of the Roman Empire, dated to 3 BC. And here's what it says. That there was an oath sworn... By all the peoples, I've got that underlined because it's, it's men and women, slave and free, all the peoples in the land at the altars of Augustus, in the temples of Augustus, in the various districts. Armenian historian Moses of Koran states that in the year of Abgar, king of Armenia, 3 BC, once again, part of the Roman Empire, a census brought Roman agents to Armenia, bringing the image of Augustus Caesar, which they set up in every temple. So here we have three different parts of the Roman Empire, all saying that there was an oath taken in 3 BC to pledge to Augustus. Is there any evidence of a similar census being taken in Israel while Herod the Great was still king? Josephus mentions this oath. Listen to this. This is straight out of Josephus. There was moreover a certain sect of Jews who valued themselves highly for their exact knowledge of the law and talking much of their contact with God were greatly in favor with the women of Herod's court. They are called Pharisees. They are men who had it in their power to control kings extremely subtle and ready to attempt anything against those whom they did not like. When therefore, listen to these words, the whole Jewish nation took an oath to be faithful to Caesar and to the interests of the king. These men, to the number of about 6,000, refused to swear. The king, having laid a fine upon them, Herod's sister-in-law, Ferocious, paid the money for them. This is out of the antiquities. So here we have, under Herod the king's reign, an oath that everybody had to take, men and women, we know there was a registration because he knows exactly how many didn't take it. <clears throat> this, 
I believe is, is the census, the registration that Mary and Joseph came to fulfill. Herod's decree required a pledge to Caesar, but not only to Caesar. Josephus says it was also to the interests of the king. Did you also notice in this oath, there's no talk of temples or bowing down or Roman agents? Why? Because even though Augustus ordered a census to be taken, Rome didn't run it. The client kingdom ran it themselves. It was up to them to run their own census, to give their own pledge. This is, this is Herod's making. To have a pledge to Caesar and to the interests of the king, guys, that did not come from Rome. Augustus does not care about Herod's interests. That's Herod that cares about Herod's interests. And of course, Joseph and Mary would never have been part of some type of thing where they had to bow down to a statue of Augustus. They never would have. This is run by the client kingdom for Rome so that they can say that they did it. The census, the census happened. It had nothing to do with taxation, and it was, it was run by Israel, not by Rome. Uh, here's the second criticism. In a Roman census, Joseph would not have had to travel to Bethlehem, and Mary would not have had to travel at all. The census was ordered by Rome, but carried out by Herod. This is how you would do it in a Clyde kingdom. All right, here we go. Leviticus 25 has explained how property works in Israel. You always own the same land. You can buy the crops on another person's land for a set amount until the year of Jubilee, but you can never own another man's family land unless it is within a walled city. In a Roman census, you would never come back to your hometown. But in a Jewish census, you have to. Everybody owns their same property. You, you don't, that property doesn't leave. The only way you keep track of people is by their family land. And a Jewish-run census would demand that everybody comes back. No... In a Roman census, Joseph would not have had to travel to Bethlehem and Mary would not have had to travel at all. Uh, for taxes, right. Only the head of the house had to travel or had to pay and had to uh, register. But this was all Israel, men and women. In every instance, the oath was from all everybody in the Roman Empire. And then here's the other one. No Roman census would have been made in Judea during the reign of Herod. We've already answered that. Not for taxes, but they commanded one for an oath to Caesar. Um, and then here's my final thing, and then we'll, we'll open it up if there's questions. The last criticism is Quirinius was not governor of Syria until long after the reign of King Herod. Luke simply, he took us, was governor of Syria. The key to understanding what Luke is saying is the word first. Conservative, there are two conservative explanations of the census. One is that Quirinius 
oversaw this first census, which was the oath. And then the second one was the, 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 the census that was the beginning of the Roman Empire and that somehow Quirinius was there for both. And it's really a forced thing to try to, to make that happen, but some do. Here is the more logical one in my mind. The first census is the Greek word prote, and it can be translated before as an adverb describing the census as taken before Quirinius was the governor of Syria. The problem that most Greek scholars have with this is it breaks all the rules of classical Greek. The, 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 the description, the way that it's there, it, prote in that situation for classical Greek cannot mean before. What, what scholars have made the case on is this isn't classical Greek. This is Koine Greek. There are much many fewer words, and they break many of the usual rulers. And one, one of the scholars named Nigel Turner says this, in Koine Greek, First is most properly used when describing at least three. When listing two, as in this case, prior or former is actually more accurate. The reason why translators chose first instead of prior was that the words would have to be added to make sense in English. Luke is employing a compressed phrase here, so English words must be supplied. Here's Turner, Turner's translation. This census was prior to the census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. In the words of Turner about his way of translating Luke 2.2, the phrase is compressed, but it is no more ungrammatical than the phrase in John 5.36. I have a testimony greater than John. You have to supply the testimony of John in parentheses. Or 1 Corinthians 1.26, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and you have to supply the wisdom of men. The words in parentheses are absent from the Greek and yet must be supplied. This is... Koine is different than classical Greek and follows different rules. He cites two times that John uses prote in this way, and Acts uh, 1.1 also uses it, which is Luke writing. History records only one census by Quirinius, and it was monumental for a Jew. Luke is well aware of this as he refers to it in Acts 5.37 as the census. Here's what Luke is doing. Luke is taking a census everybody knows about. The census under Quirinius, the famous one the, that led to a rebellion that was the beginning of the Roman Empire. And he's, he's referencing another census that came before that that very few people are aware of. And he's using one census. He's saying this is before the famous census. This is the census Mary and Joseph came. This other census that everybody has forgotten about by now because they had to do all kinds of things back then that were, it, it, it was inconsequential, this census, compared to this one. So it was the first census. It was before the census. And interesting, today, um, several of the translations have now added before as a possibility. The, the most recent is the NIV. If you look at Luke 2.2 in the most modern NIV, the note before says... Uh, the note underneath says, this census took before. 
So there was an empire wide census. It was in three BC. Joseph and Mary were part of it. History testifies that they were part of it. Jesus was born. Herod died a few years later. This is history, not fiction. And that is my talk on the census. (sighs) 